Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. I've got pictures of some of our colleagues in Ukraine on their laptop, in bomb shelters, in subways, still working. It's incredible. Of course, to the extent that we can, we always say, look, focus on your health and your family and don't worry about working. But many of them want to work. They want to contribute to Ukraine and to the Ukrainian economy. We had already been looking at how we could start helping people get out of the country and then start thinking through, well, once they get out of the country, then what? Our European headquarters is in Spain. So we offered to our contractors the ability to relocate to Spain. It's making sure that all of our employees at Imburse know that they are our number one priority and that we're going to be here for them and do everything under our power to help them. That's Eric Friedrichsen, CEO of Imburse, a thousand-person B2B software provider that's relied in part on tech contractors in Ukraine. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Eric because while humanitarian aid organizations are intently focused on serving Ukraine's refugees, individual businesses with direct ties to Ukraine face their own often more intimate challenge about how to help, who to help, and what role they should play. For the executive team at Imburse, the answer has included helping contractors still inside Ukraine, as well as relocating some families all the way to Spain, where Imburse's European operations are headquartered. The number of people directly impacted at Imburse may be relatively modest, but the scale of the impact on those people has been significant, changing lives, creating safety, providing a financial safety net. These choices haven't come without risks and financial costs for Imburse. But as Eric explains, the benefits are moral, communal, and even quantifiable. Eric says both his employees and his customers are measuring the company's responses, as stakeholders increasingly are for all businesses. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. (laughs) That's Aparna Saran. Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are 
taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight? Have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Eric Friedrichsen, the CEO of Imburse. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bob. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So you run a global software business, an expense management platform for businesses from Microsoft to Estee Lauder. You have offices and teams across the world. And among your close partners is a firm in Ukraine called SoftJourn. Not everyone realizes that Ukraine is home to a bunch of key tech workers. You've taken some active steps to help that team. I'm hoping you can take us through the journey that you and they have been on in recent weeks. Sure. To start, how did Russia's invasion of Ukraine first hit your business, your people? So, Bob, we've got about 1,000 people across the globe that work for Embers. About 850 of them are employees, and we've got about 150 contractors. And it just so happens that about 90 of our contractors are in Ukraine or have been in Ukraine. As Russia was starting to approach the border and the threat of an invasion started to pick up, we had started to make some contingency plans to start looking at how we could support our contractors in Ukraine But if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I don't think any of us really thought the invasion would happen. We were starting to prepare for it. And then when it did happen, we realized now we need to move and mobilize quite quickly. So you have multiple vendors in Ukraine that you've been working with. Yeah. So we've got multiple contracting companies. Some are relatively new, but some have been with us for several years. We've got longstanding partnership with SoftJourn as one of our our bigger partners there in Ukraine. So you don't necessarily have a contingency plan fully baked when the invasion happened. So when do you realize and how do you realize that maybe there's something more you're going to do? We had already been looking at how we could start helping people get out of the country and then start thinking through, well, once they get out of the country, then what? How do we help them? How do we get them into a place where their families are safe, where they are safe and where they can continue working if they are able to and interested in doing that? Once the invasion happened around February 24th, it all sort of came to a head and accelerated all of our plans pretty dramatically. We worked with our consulting partners, our contracting partners in Ukraine to get a list of, okay, where is everybody today? Are they safe? What is their risk level? And how do we get them into the best possible place we can get them to? Software in particular is headquartered in Lviv, which is in the western part of Ukraine, which at least early in the war was under a little bit less risk than many of the other parts of the country. And so many of our contractors that were not already in Lviv, that were more in the eastern part or the southern parts of Ukraine relocated to Lviv, which was helpful. Not all of them, but many of them did. As the war went on after the first couple of weeks, we worked with our contracting partners to find ways to get as many people out of the country as possible. We arranged for some buses to be able to bus people to the border, primarily to Poland. It didn't take long before the ultimatum that adult males under the age of 60 needed to stay in the country. So we pivoted at that point to actually transporting females and children out of the country, families out of the country 
And most of them ended up going first to Poland. And then they're in Poland and you then decided that you could do more for them? Yeah. So we're fortunate that our European headquarters is in Spain, in a town, a village called Tortosa, which is about two hours south of Barcelona. And so we offered to our contractors the ability to relocate to Spain. So we said we would pay for their air or train or car transportation, and that we would pay for them at least for the first three months in a hotel or an apartment. And for those that could work and still wanted to work, we were able to provide them with a good way to do that near one of our offices at our European headquarters. And did many of them take you up on this? Like how many people were making this journey or have been making this journey or has that all shifted too? Yeah, it's all shifted. We have 94 contractors in Ukraine. Approximately 30 have left the country. So we still have over 60 that are in the country. So approximately 30 have left. 12 of them have raised their hand and said they would like to relocate to Spain. So far, four have actually relocated. Four families have relocated to Spain and we're working on getting the other families to Spain, as well as continuing to make sure that our contractors know that we want to be able to help them. Why did you feel like this is your responsibility? I mean, part of the reason sometimes people have contractors is specifically because it's less responsibility, right, than having people on staff. Why did you make the decision to get involved to this degree? Well, you know, I think it starts honestly with our mission as a company. So our mission at Imburse is to humanize work for our customers. In practical terms, we have software that processes expense reports and invoices. And, you know, we try to remove all the mundane tasks to make our customers' employees' lives much better so they can spend more time with their communities and their families. But that concept of humanizing work it extends way beyond what we're doing for our customers. It extends to the way our employees treat each other. Our employees, you know, raised their hands and said, what can we do to help? You know, we've got relationships with these folks and we care about them. You know, are there ways that we can help in a more direct manner than just providing donations to, which we did as well, by the way, donations to the Red Cross and some other agencies, you know, there, is there a more direct way we can help the people that we care about? And so that's what really drove the program. Based on the assets that you have, meaning you had an office in Spain that you could put to use this way. And we have people in Spain that care and can help. So we've got 75 people there on the ground in Tortosa that have helped them when they land, spend time with them, help them accommodate we arranged with an apartment hotel for a discounted rate, which we're paying for the first three months. We have actually since arranged for the first four families to move into an apartment building all in the same location in the same block, just five minute walk from our office. It's really helped them build more of a community. So they've got each other. They don't speak Spanish. Some of them speak English, but at least they have other Ukrainians near them that they can help that can help each other. So that's part of it. Some of our employees have spent a considerable amount of time greeting them, helping them figure out how to get signed up for healthcare, how to get their kids signed up for schools. We've started to provide laptops from our inventory, not to the contractors because they already have them from their contracting company, but actually to the children of the contractors that need those laptops for school. And so we've started to provide that. And there's an incredible psychological component, both for our contractors and our employees in the ground. And so we've hired a professional psychologist to help our contractors there on the ground get settled, 
get their needs met. And we've gotten a host program so that each one of these families has a host family. So they don't stay with the host family, but they have a host family that's an Imburse employee that can help them when they can't figure something out. Mm. Then you said there's a, another group of things you're doing for those who can't make it to Spain or choosing not to go to Spain. Some of the people that are in Ukraine don't want to leave. You know, they want to stay. Some of them want to fight and we can all understand why that would be. And then for those that have left Ukraine, some of them want to stay close. Perhaps their spouse is still in Ukraine. They want to be able to be there in case they can return quickly. They want to be right there, but they still have needs. They don't have a place to stay. And so we're fortunate that we have technology that can help. We have in a burst corporate card we provide to our customers. We now can provide those to our Ukrainian contractors that are outside of Ukraine, but not able to come to Spain. And so we've personally funded those through our executive team, not through Imburse, but through our executive team, 500 euros to just get the ball rolling. They need about 500 euro for housing per month. And so we started that initiative. That's being funded by the executive team, by you and other leaders of the company? That's correct. How did that decision come about? It was really mostly about urgency, Bob. You know, we knew that there was a tremendous need. You know, it takes a little bit of time, even in a very nimble company like ours, to try to go figure out how to fund something like this. And the executive team didn't want to wait. So we just made the commitment to go ahead and extend that first amount of funding. I've heard stories from other CEOs about Ukraine-based team members who, somewhat surprisingly to them, like, want to continue working. Have you had that experience at all? 100%. And I've got pictures of some of our colleagues in Ukraine on their laptop, in bomb shelters, in subways, still working. Believe it or not, our productivity rate for our contractors is still at 75% for those in and outside of Ukraine. It's incredible. Of course, to the extent that we can, we always say, look, focus on your health and your family and don't worry about working but many of them want to work. And I think it's a good distraction for them. Many of them have told us that they also want to contribute to the economy. They want to obviously contribute to their family, but they want to contribute to Ukraine and to the Ukrainian economy. And so they want to keep working. Yeah, I saw an open letter from one of the managing directors of SoftGen on their website, arguing that tech workers are like fighting a second front in the war, this economic front to keep Ukraine functioning and resource, but it's got to be tricky. I mean, yeah, especially if you've got some folks leaving to go to other countries, some folks leaving to go to the army. Like, how do you know what you're going to get from this resource? The first thing is, is that we temper all the information that we get and we assume that whatever people are committing to, that we should expect a little bit less than that but we keep track of it. We literally have a spreadsheet of every single contractor, where they currently are, what their needs are, you know, how much they are able to work or want to work. And we obviously measure the productivity. We also have started to bring on some additional permanent and contracting employees to help bridge the gap in other locations. You mentioned software, they provided some additional resources outside of Ukraine. So overall, as an organization, we haven't seen productivity drop at this point. We obviously are continuing to assume that it may drop. And so we're doing everything in our power to, to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So I guess you have to have a contingency plan, a backup option, but you're not choosing to sort of pivot away and say, I don't need to worry about these people anymore. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, in a burst, we're fortunate in that we're a very fast growing company. So we need to go hire a number of people anyway. So our expectation is as our Ukrainian team is able to get back up to full productivity, whenever that happens, we then will just be in a better spot because we will have grown even more. Hmm. Are there things that you're hearing from the folks on the ground, whether in Ukraine or in one of the refugee locations that have struck you in any ways? You know, I think about some of the stories that the first family that made it to Tortosa when they landed and our team met them and brought them to their apartment hotel, you know, it was a female contractor and a teenage son and then a four-year-old daughter. And anytime there was a loud noise, the four-year-old would jump and just be completely in fear. And the child didn't sleep for the first several days being in Spain. And then after about a week, when our team went and spent more time with the family you know, things were just a little bit better. Now the child was asking where the park was and wanted to get out of the house. So, you know, even that is a win as people are getting a little bit more comfortable. So that's one of the things that we've seen. But then there's other things that really have struck us. And some of it is our refugees need money, not just things. And some of it is they need to be able to buy what they actually need, not what we think they need. And then some of it, to be perfectly honest, is dignity. They don't want used clothes. I mean, if we can give them the opportunity to buy new clothes and the things that they need, it makes a huge, huge difference for them. They're also so gracious and so appreciative of everything that we've done for them that they don't really want to ask for things. And so we've had to kind of pull it out of them. What are areas and ways that we can help you? Mm. So at first you would sort of gather used clothes or things that people didn't need to sort of offer to them? That's correct. Whether it was a baby stroller or coats or shirts or whatever it might be, there's a number of different things that we collected. And ultimately, as it turned out, we weren't necessarily providing the right things and we weren't giving our colleagues the opportunity to take care of their fundamental needs, what they actually needed. And so that's where we've really migrated to a more of a cash-based type of an approach to assist. Hmm. It's still early days for all this how much have you guys thought about what the longer term commitment you're going to make is, or do you just sort of have to take it day by day a little bit right now? You know, we're focused on day by day at this point, Bob, how much support we're going to provide over time. We haven't made that determination yet. We've been just really, really hyper-focused on the urgent needs of our people. I will say more and more of our employees have asked how they can help. In the future, we are working on developing a plan for our employees to be able to help more. So that could allow us to extend even further some of the, the things that we're offering. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be 
the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Embers CEO Eric Friedrichsen talk about efforts to help the company's outside contractors in Ukraine, including relocating some families all the way to Spain. Now he shares how the experience is impacting Embers' business. Plus, lessons he's taken away on navigating roadblocks and why the company's reaction in Ukraine is critical to both employees and customers. Embers itself is a relatively new entity. The combination of businesses brought together in early 2020, just as the pandemic was arriving, having remote dispersed teams, was that an advantage in the heat of the pandemic? Or did it complicate things? We were fortunate coming into the pandemic that we had a very distributed workforce. And so mentioned Tortosa earlier, where we have about 75 people in Los Angeles, we've got about 150 in Portland, Maine, we've got about 150, but out of, you know, a thousand people total, they're all over the globe. And so we already were used to working in a very remote way. And that helped us pretty tremendously through COVID. Were there things about that experience that informed or impacted your response to what's happening in Ukraine? You know, I think for one, for better or for worse, Bob, we've gotten good at dealing with crisis and it's not just in bursts. It's not just me as a CEO. I think it's all of us in the business world have really learned how to a little, little bit better. Anyway, we're still learning, but we've learned a little bit better how to navigate crises and how to figure out what to prioritize. We're uh, looking for silver linings from these, you know, tragic things that we have to deal with. And I guess lessons that can make us better in the future. Are there lessons already for you from this experience with your colleagues in Ukraine? Yeah, I think the first thing that I found when, you know, our executives and our employees were trying to put together programs to go help our Ukrainian colleagues they kept uncovering roadblocks or risks. And the biggest thing I told them is, these are people, this is urgent. Let's not worry as much about the risks right now. Let's just go solve the problem urgently and we will deal with the risks after the fact. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson learned was don't let the roadblocks get in the way when there are people that need you desperately. You guys are not experts in humanitarian aid or dealing with refugees. How did you work with or consider maybe what other partners or other experts were doing and decide that this was the role that you should play? So the first thing we did was we we made a donation to the International Committee of Red Cross, and we communicated to all of our employees who were raising their hand they should consider you know, International Committee of the Red Cross, International Rescue Committee, UNICEF, Ukraine Crisis Relief Fund, those that we felt like 
you know, really know what they're doing. They're on the ground and they can really help. But that said, you know, we are not experts in how to help refugees, but our employees are experts in how to get around Tortosa, how to live there, how to get an apartment, how to get to physician, how to help kids get educated. We've already got English language and Spanish language teachers in Tortosa. And so we were able to extend some of those services to our Ukrainian colleagues that relocated there. So there's a humanitarian commitment that you made, but some of that commitment is good for your business too, right? Like you're getting these folks who work for you to continue to be productive. How much of that is a motivation in making the investments that you're making? Our number one priority is the safety and well-being of our colleagues. That's our absolute number one priority. But, you know, as a business, our colleagues in Ukraine are extremely important to us. They're very valuable. They do really important things for our customers, whether it's helping innovate and engineer solutions that we offer to our customers or supporting our customers. And so by giving them the opportunity to continue to be productive, it's good for them. It's good for them to continue to provide income to their family and to, you know, help their home country, but it's good for Imburse. It's good for our business. It's good for our customers as well. There's no, no question about that. There is a, a higher cost to all this than maybe you had budgeted going into this year. Yeah, again, we're right now focused on the urgency. And so we're absolutely spending more money than we would have otherwise. What I will say is our perspective, there's a much greater cost to not helping our Ukrainian colleagues than helping them. And not just from a humanitarian standpoint, but even from a business standpoint. Again, they're extremely valuable and important to the inverse organization. And, you know, if we can help them and keep them productive, it, it's good for our customers and it's good for us. Mm. The crisis in Ukraine, the history with the pandemic and COVID have raised a lot of questions about what the role of business is in dealing with these kinds of issues versus the role of government, of other entities. Like, how do you think about what your responsibility is as a CEO? And how much has that changed from the way you might have thought about it, you know, two, three, four years ago? Yeah, it's absolutely changed. The way I view the role of the CEO is very different than what it used to be. Our role is really integrated with the community. It's not just about running a business now. It's about trying to help communities. And so it's part of my role as CEO to do everything in my power. And I'm fortunate that I've got a team of people behind me that can help. And I've got revenue behind us that can help. So I definitely think the role of the CEO has evolved dramatically over the last few years. What do you feel like is at stake for Imburse right now? Our employees and our customers are looking at how we react to this crisis. What are we doing? How are we supporting the people that we care about? How are we mitigating risks to ensure that this crisis isn't a detriment to our customers and how we're serving them? And so I think they're looking at us very, very closely and they're going to measure us on this. They're going to measure us from a morality standpoint, but they're also going to measure us as a vendor. And have we served them well through this crisis? You have, as you say, 94 people in Ukraine or who are out of Ukraine out of a thousand, which is relatively small number proportion wise. Do you worry that you're getting distracted or that this could be a distraction from other things that, you know, are priorities within the business? No, I don't. I mean, again, our 
people are our most important asset. So it's not just about taking care of our 94 people, but it's making sure that all of our employees at Imburst know that they are our number one priority and that we're going to be here for them and do everything under our power to help them. Well, Eric, this has been great. Thanks so much for sharing this. Bob, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. And now a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates, so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale Courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.